How y'all doing? Awesome, awesome. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. If you don't have one, just look underneath you. Grab one of those blue and white ones. Uh, Acts is in the New Testament. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. Feel free to keep that Bible. It's all yours if you want to you take it home. Uh, even if you have one and you know someone that ha- needs a Bible, take that one and give that to them. We have those there for you to take. Uh, if you want a really nice one, you can check our lost and found. There's probably something in there somewhere. Um, anyway, uh, open up to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Uh, about 40 sermons or weeks ago, we started the book of Acts. We're, we're about 40 sermons in here to the book of Acts. Uh, and the reason why we are doing the book of Acts is because uh, right before that, we had kind of reworked our mission statement uh, to include basically three things. So if someone ever comes up to you, especially if you're a member, and asks you, hey, what's Remedy Church about? You need to say community, mission, and care. Those are the three words that should be first off your mouth, and then you can explain them. Um, community, because we want to be a community that invites other people into our community, so we're growing in community. That, that They're in a Christian community. They know what it feels like. Mission, we all know we're supposed to fulfill the Great Commission, tell people about Jesus, uh, and see unbelievers get saved and so there's a group of people that you can join with you don't have to do it by yourself as a lone ranger you can join with a group of 10 or 12 people in community groups and do mission together and care if there's ever ever anything going on in your life where you need people to love you pray for you be there for you bring food to you etc there's a group of people that care and so we decided after we kind of reworked our mission statement we would go through the book of Acts all the way through it and repeatedly see instances of community mission and care being demonstrated by the early church, take those principles and how they do those things and incorporate them to the life of our church. And so that's what we've been doing. Anyway, so that brings us to chapter 17 uh, where it's been uh, an interesting task, I, I can say, for me this week. Last week we looked at Thessalonica, um, which is chapter 17 verses 1 through 9. So Paul, you can put up the map for me. Paul is on what's known as his second missionary journey. Paul is a missionary. He's a guy that's wanting to go tell people about Jesus. And he's already been on one missionary journey where he, he left Antioch. He went around through Cyprus. He kind of went through here and he went back to Antioch. Now he's on his second one and he kind of started down here. He's gone all the way up into here. Uh, and so last week we saw in Acts 16, he was in Philippi. Acts 17, 1 through 9, he was in Thessalonica right there. And then the text we're going to look at today, 10 through 15, he's going to be over here in Berea. So there's two cities, Thessalonica and Berea, that Paul has been from one week to the next, or at least one week for us to the next, of course, and his time frame, not necessarily one week to the next. But Luke is the person that wrote the book of Acts. And Luke's recording the book of Acts. And as Luke is writing and recording the book of Acts for us, um, what he's doing is trying to help us see a difference between Thessalonica and Berea. So I want to read these two texts back to back so you can see Luke who's writing it is trying to draw out a contrast between the city of Thessalonica, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, the reaction of the people in Thessalonica to the ministry of Paul versus Berea. Paul's ministry in Berea, the way that people reacted to Paul's ministry in Berea. And he's wanting us to see intentionally these contrasts. Now, we didn't do the contrast last week because we just looked at Thessalonica. Um, And if you look specifically at the end of verse 6, it says, These men who have turned the world upside down, that's what we looked at last week. Paul actually did turn because of Jesus, the world upside down. We were able to look back 2,000 years ago and see Jesus really used Paul to carry the gospel to lots of people. Lots of people got saved, and the message of Jesus and the gospel has completely turned the world upside down. So that, they were trying to say it in a negative sense to get Paul in trouble, but 
It's actually true. And we looked at what were some of the characteristics of lo- that people who are Christians and the way they love each other so that they can turn the world upside down. We want to do that ourselves. But that was in Thessalonica. And as I said, Luke is, in, is trying to contrast these two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. My ca- task or my goal today or my job today is to help us see the difference between Thessalonica and Berea Two cities from 2,000 years ago and the way Paul preached the gospel to these two cities. And then, which is maybe the hardest part, is take those two things and let us all look at it and say, all right, what does that have to do with me right now, today? What's the difference between these two cities and how can I apply that? So I want to show you, read you the, the, two, diff- the, the, the two passages so you can see there's a contrast. And then hopefully we'll see the, the, how we can apply that. So Thessalonica, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis into Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, on, on three Sabbaths. So every city Paul goes to, he goes to the synagogue, and he looks for people that were historically Jewish so that he could talk to them about Jesus and say, since you're historically Jewish and you understand the Old Testament scriptures, this, this, this Jesus that I want to tell you about was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament scriptures, which you already know. And so he can help them understand who Jesus was so they could trust in Jesus and he would get those people on his team and they would help him reach the rest of the people in the city who didn't understand what the Old Testament was, didn't understand anything about the Bible. So Paul, every city, he goes to what would be the low-hanging fruit, those who would trust Jesus quickly to help him and join him. Every city he goes to, he doesn't Thessalonica. He goes to the synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom on three-day Sabbath days. He reasoned with these Thessalonicans from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ, the Messiah, who is Jesus to suffer, to rise from the dead, uh, as we know, die on the cross and be resurrected, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of, of devout Greeks, so those who weren't Jewish, but, and not a few of the le- leading women. But the Jews, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. They did not believe. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, setting the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason, some of the brothers, before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have also come here, or have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, which means you should only worship Caesar and call him king. And here's how they're doing it. They're saying that there's another king, not Caesar, but Jesus, which is absolutely true. But, of course... That they don't enjoy that. They, they believe that Caesar should be the only king. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And they had taken, <clears throat> when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. That's Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. Many of those who were Jewish opposed him, didn't want them. As a matter of fact, they, they caused some persecution against the, the believers there. That's the ministry there. Now, Luke intentionally puts Berea right beside so we can see the tremendous difference between those Jews who were not persuaded and, as it says, were jealous and they were causing a rabble. They were, that's one of my favorite words, they're causing a rabble. This is what happens in Berea. The brothers, so they left, they went to Berea, you know, some, you know, 50 miles away. The brothers immediately set, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived and they went to the Jewish synagogue. Same thing always. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They were different. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few of Greek women and high-standing men as well. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned 
that the word of God was being proclaimed by, by Paul and Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off his way to the sea, get him out of here, don't want him to get hurt. But Paul and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul <clears throat> or brought Paul basically as far as Athens after receiving the command for Paul and Simon to come uh, to return him as soon as possible, they departed. So you can see uh, whenever the Thessalonians heard that Paul was in Berea, they ran over there to, ki- to kill Paul again. Paul leaves. He goes all the way down here to Athens. Um, and he stays, this is maybe 250 miles or so, down to Athens, and he stays there. When he gets there, he says, go tell Timothy and Silas that I'm here, and then they come and join him. But Timothy and Silas stayed in Berea for a while. So now we've seen the difference between the two cities. We can see that Luke, as he's writing, is intentionally trying to help us see that there's a, there's a contrast between these two cities. My goal, my job today is to help you see these contrasts, which I think there's at least four, and as we see these contrasts, um, apply them to our everyday life right now. So let's pray. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's able to do so many things. It's sufficient. It's all we need. So we pray this morning as we look at these two cities that are, that are clearly contrasted by Luke. As, and, and Luke was uh, carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote. So these things are intentionally uh, there for us to see from you. We pray that that we would see these things, understand these things, and that we would put these things into practice, or our life would be changed by these things. We would want these things to happen in our life. I pray for those that are believers in Christ for a long time. These things are things that they know, and they've probably known for a while, God, that as they hear these things again, that they would have a renewed desire to to practice uh, these things in their life. I pray for people that are new to the faith, that might not have ever heard these things before, And that, Lord, that they would drink them in deeply. That they would want to practice these things in their life. And I pray for anybody here that doesn't know Jesus. Perhaps they've never become a Christian. That as they hear the message of Jesus about his death, his resurrection for them. That it was done for them so that they can now be forgiven of their sin. That they can now be uh, united with you forever. That they can now have no condemnation on them. God, that they would receive it willingly and eagerly. They would be a believer in Jesus today. That you would, you would save them today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, there, I think that there are about four different contrasts between Thessalonica and Berea. And these four contrasts have direct application for us today. I want you to see the first one. Look at verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble... Than those were in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. They examined the scriptures daily. Now, this is different than those in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, it says in verse 2, when Paul went there, Paul went in, as was his custom, on the three Sabbath days. So every Saturday he went and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. So the difference that we can automatically see between the Thessalon- Thessalonians, or the Thessalonians, one of those two, and the, uh, the Bereans is that the Bereans wanted every day to engage with Scripture. We see this, come again tomorrow, we want to engage with Scripture again. We see this, come again tomorrow, we want to engage with, script- with Scripture. The Thessalonians were, were totally fine with just doing it once per week. So that's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, number one contrast is this, frequency of engagement 
with, it should, maybe it should say the word, the definite article should be there, with the word. So Luke is helping us see that the Bereans love the Bible so much that they are not fine with just engaging with Scripture once per week as someone else does it. But instead they say, we want to daily engage with Scripture. You can obviously see the direct application that I can make right now. Are you a, Thessal- a Thessalonian or a Berean? Do you engage with Scripture once per week whenever I say open up to Acts like a Thessalonian? Or are you a Berean? That outside of our meetings on Sundays, you still, like a Berean, say, I need to engage with the Scriptures daily. I can't just once per week see what, what, what FUD tells me in the Bible and let that be the only time I engage with Scripture. I think that one direct application we can make is be like a Berean and engage with Scripture daily. Because inside of the text of Scripture is a relationship with Jesus. It's not a reading assignment like school. It's not your favorite book like Harry Potter. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's a relationship with Jesus. Imagine if I only had a conversation with my wife once per week on Sundays. That's it. That would not go well, by the way. That, she would not enjoy that. If I could say, I'm going to be like a Thessalonian with you, and we're just going to talk on Sundays. <laughs> no. She would insist, and she, will, she does insist, in a good way, that we have conversation every single day, that we keep our marriage going by engaging uh, in conversation every day. And in the same way, we need to be in the Scriptures daily like a Berean. Um, Many of you might not know this because you were born much later. I was a child of the 80s, and so those that are older, are gonna, you're going you're gonna to feel this, right? The way you had to watch a TV show when I grew up was you had to be at the TV Tuesday at 8 o'clock or else you didn't see it. There was no, I didn't have a VCR, so there was no recording it. There was no watching it the next day on the internet. If you wanted to watch it, you had to be at the TV Tuesday at 8 or you would never see it again. Maybe. Maybe it would be later on as a repeat, but probably not because they didn't repeat all their shows. So it was either Tuesday at 8 or you missed it forever. That's it. That is not the way it works now at all. Um, now you can say, I want to watch that show. And then you just watch it. And like 40 minutes later, you want to watch another one? All right, let's do it. Play. You just watch it again. You want to watch another one? All right, let's play. Okay, it's 1230. We, if we watch one more, because it's 42 minutes, we'll go to bed at 1.12. There's no difference between 12.30 and 1.12. Don't look at me. You do it too. Don't, you know you do it. You do the exact same thing. You're like, all right, just one more. and we'll, It's only 40 minutes less sleep. Let's do it. One more. Boom. That's, you, we know we can do that. We can watch TV shows like that. It's completely different than when I grew up. It's either Tuesday at 8, and i got to come back in seven days, Tuesday at 8, or this is not my show. I don't get it. All right? That's the way it was when I grew up. Now, we've even created a word for what we call one after another. Binge watching, right? Which is unhealthy. Very unhealthy. It's, it's an unhealthy term to binge watch. Um, but we've even created a term for it. So, uh, the way I grew up watching TV is Thessalonians. Once per week, you've got to be there no matter what. But what we've created today with Netflix or NBC.com or ABC.com or whatever you binge watch on is Bereans. Now, binge doing anything is unhealthy. But, and I have to say things in memorable ways to try to help you remember it. So this, I'm doing this. There's one thing you can binge that's not unhealthy. So if you, don't, if you don't remember anything else, here it is. Binge the Bible. Binge the Bible. 
And when you finish that show and you feel like you're in a show hole, you go back and you watch that whole thing again. You binge the Bible over and over and over and over and over and over. That's the Bereans. They daily get in the scriptures. You want to do it again? Let's do another one. We'll watch another one. Keep reading. If I go to bed right, I can, watch, I can read another chapter. Read another chapter. Keep going. Binge the Bible. That's what we learn here. Contrasting the Thessalonians from the Bereans. That they were in the scriptures daily. They were in the scriptures daily. That's the first one. So, if we are going to um, live as Christ wants us, we need to be in the scriptures daily. Now, the second one is this. Go back to verse 17. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. But next word I want you to see is examining. Right there in verse 11. They examined the scriptures. So, Not only did they uh, read the scriptures daily, as they read the scriptures daily, they thought deeply on them. They examined them. So when I say binge the Bible, I don't mean just read the Bible and say, like, check that off, done it, what's next? Instead, as you do that, let your mind be soaked into the thoughts, the phrases, the sentences, the paragraphs, the structure, the argumentation, all pointing to Jesus and Think deeply about the things that are being said. These things that are here are vastly important. Vastly important. So here's the second one. The second contrast is in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, they they didn't receive the word. And they certainly weren't examining the word. Acromino. Um, I may not pronounce that right. Uh, Anacrino. Anacrino. This is judicial investigation. This is... Investigation with no bias, investigation with all integrity. I'm looking into the scriptures as deeply as possible to see if these things are so. And here's the key. If these things are so, if who Jesus, uh, if Jesus is really who he's saying it is, he is, well, that means, that means everything. That changes everything about the way I need to live my life. So I'm going to do the examination. So when I say uh, think deeply, Realize that when you think deeply and you examine the scriptures and you see that these things are so, there are now implications for your knowledge. Now that you know that, there are huge implications for you. I have to believe now. I have to live for Christ now. I have to treasure Christ now. I don't treasure me anymore. I don't live for me anymore. Instead, my entire life now is wrapped up in who Christ is and what he's done for me. So the second thing is reception and examining. And I want to make sure I I emphasize the word reception. So when I examine, I am receiving all of its truths. In Thessalonica, they didn't do that. But here, they received the word with all eagerness. And all its implications. And all the things that comes with that. If Christ, meaning this, if Christ really is, uh, Jesus Christ really is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who died on the cross, that was resurrected three days later, and all this is true, then I have, tr- I have uh, tremendous things that I need to change in my life. That's what was going on with the Bereans. That means that's what's going on for us. Stott says, what's impressive about the Bereans is that with Paul or the Bereans, neither speaker Paul nor hearers Bereans use scripture in a superficial, unintelligent, or proof-texting way. Their relationship with the Bible was not some kind of superficial relationship, like, ah, I know what that is, kind of. It means this and blah, blah, blah. And that's not even a Bible verse that they quote, right? They actually know the scriptures deeply. Paul 
and the Bereans believed in doctrine, but not indoctrination. Indoctrination is just, well, I've got to believe it because you say so. It's the opposite of that. I'm going to see that these things are so. I'm going to they're absolutely true. And now I believe them, not because you're making me, but because I see and know that they're true. That's what comes with examination and true receiving of the word. Their relationship with the Bible was deep, thoughtful, weighty, not trife proof texting, but eagerness to see and know the scriptures, eagerness to, to know what's in there, and as they know what's in there, examining the scriptures daily, doing the real work to see that it's true, and then after that, receiving all the implications. So the second application is this. Not only do you, should you read the Bible, but as you read, you see who Christ is. You see what he's done. And you realize he really is who he says he is. Taking all of those implications, if, if that's true, then that means I really do have to change my life. That means I really do have to follow him. That means I really do have to treasure him. And then actually putting those things into practice. Now, I could spend more time on two, but there's more I want to do with, with number three. So I'm just going to leave number two there. The first one is binge the Bible daily. Be in the scriptures daily. The second one is when you do that, truly examine the word. And as you examine the word, let all the implications of the fact that he really is the king of the world really come on your life and that you really have to change your life if if he's not the king of your world. The third one is this, is belief. In verse 12, we see when all that happens, there's a therefore, that, that, that oon. It says many of them, therefore. That therefore is saying, based on what you saw and what you just read there in verse 11, something happens. There's a natural consequence. Therefore, many of them believed. That's the difference between the Jews in Berea and the Jews in in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they were jealous. And they took wicked men of the rabble and they formed a mob. And they tried to kill the Christians. That's the opposite of what happens in Berea, where they believe in Jesus. So third one. Belief by the Jews. I'm just talking about specifically about the Jews in between these two cities. But there was belief in Berea. There was belief. So I want to, uh, I want to concentrate on what I mean by the word belief here. You can see it right there in verse 12. They believed. This is also the word faith. Belief is the word faith. They believed. Belief is simple and yet it's vastly profound. It's vastly profound. So when I say believe, what kind of belief do I mean? And to what effect does this belief, belief happen? Or what does it actually bring about? Um, so I want to make sure I uh, explain what I mean by belief. Because in today, in America, especially because of, I don't know, TV shows and, and, and postmodernism, belief has just been kind of misunderstood. There's a Danish philosopher that lived in the 1800s, around eight, he died in 1850, he was like 42, Soren Kierkegaard was his name. And he's famous for making this kind of statement of you need to take a leap of faith. And that's kind of permeated now, you know, 150 years later into our, 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 our way that we think about things, that in order to really trust something, eventually you get to this point where you just have to take this kind of blind leap of faith into something that's basically intangible and unprovable. And if you're really going to follow it, you just take this leap of faith. That is not Christianity. That is not what I say that they believed. The Bereans clearly don't take a leap of faith. They examine the scriptures to see if these things are true. They see that these things are true. And they believe in something that's totally reasonable, totally rational. 
So when I say belief, I don't mean, I don't mean the Kierkegaard leap of faith. Or, well, I guess I just got to, you know, take I'm to the point where I can't understand anything. So I'm just going just gonna to believe it and just hope that it's true. It's not provable. Every other religion, that's the case, but not Christianity. Christianity has a wealth of evidence, a wealth of proof that it's very reasonable, very rational to believe in Christianity. And so what I want to do on this third one is, is spend some time helping us see that Christianity is not a leap, blind leap of faith, that it's totally rational and reasonable to believe in Jesus. And like any other religion, Christianity offers tons of rational proof and evidence to follow. And the reason why I want you to know this is because you will be armed with these things for, 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 for two reasons. One, if you know people that, uh, that are not believers, hearing some of these things is good to know to be able to share with them. But even in your own life, if you find yourself continually plagued with doubt about the Christian faith, I wonder if these things are true. I want to read a ton of things to you that are good to know that are, help you understand that Christianity, your belief in Christianity, is totally reasonable, totally rational. And unlike any other religion, it offers a wealth of evidence that believing the resurrection is absolutely true. Because when it comes down to Christianity, it's, it's about Jesus, who he is. There's lots of things you could talk on the periphery about, should Christians drink alcohol, should there be a women deacon, you know, Lots of stuff you can throw at. And those things are really inconsequential. Were there dinosaurs? Like, the main thing that you need to get down to is this. Jesus, was he God? Did he become God or was he always God? And if he was always God and he became man and will always be man, did he die? Did, was there really a man that died? Was there really a man that resurrected? And if he resurrected, no one else does that. And if they do, which we saw Jesus did, and they die again. But he never died again. So that's a very unique case. Those things, are those facts true? If those facts are true, it changes everything. And his followers, if they really believe that, is that true? It cha- does that change everything? I want to read you something. Let me, let me explain why this is, tr- this is important to me. Um, some 10 years ago or so, I was, I was a youth minister. And when I was a youth minister, I had you know, a, a short window of time with students. And one of my goals was, I told this to them all the time, believers, believers that are teenagers, believers, not unbelievers, Christians that are teenagers, when they go to college, uh, seven out of ten leave the faith. Christians, seven out of ten leave the faith. And I would tell them all the time, my job as your youth minister is that you are going to be the ones that don't leave the faith. So I want to do everything I can to equip you so that you understand who Christ is, you treasure Jesus, and when you go to college, you're ready. Because in college, you're, you're going to be um, confronted. Now, whether you're a strong Christian or not a strong Christian, I think really, as, as a 17 or 18-year-old, really should determine whether you're ready to go to what kind of school. That's a whole other conversation I don't have time for, but it really does... I have lots of strong opinions on whether you should go to a Christian school, non-Christian school. Some should, some should. Anyway, back to what I want to say. Um, so there was one particular student that I had the opportunity to lead to Christ. And when I led, led him to Christ, I, I mean, I poured into him a long time. When he went to college, left the faith. Um, and every time I see him, I, have, I want to get together with him. I want to have lunch with him. 
and I want to tell him the gospel again so that he'll come back to the faith. And when I think about him walking away from the faith, it breaks my heart. And I am armed with these things so when I have a conversation with him, I can talk to him about these things because he doesn't believe some of these. And these things are, these things are indisputable facts that when armed with them, um, I can help him understand that our belief in Jesus is totally reasonable and rational. And if that's the case, then we need to do something about, in our own life, when we're confronted with these things, we have to say something. C.S. Lewis says he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. It's one of those three. But here's the things. I want to arm you with some of these things. Number one, this is, and this has been disputed with me by, by this guy. There really was a man named Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago. That's fact. You, I've been argued with that, but that's, on the face of it, any argument that that's not true is absolutely ridiculous. Every historian that lived back then talks of him. Non-Christians that don't want to believe in him, that don't want him to, anything that he said to be true, that's indisputable. There was a man named Jesus that lived, and not only that, he died on a Roman cross by crucifixion. All this is absolutely true. Next, not only that, he was buried in a tomb very close to where he died. That's indisputable. We know these things is true. But these things are important because as we look through these things, I don't even tell you how many I have. You'll freak out. But there's a lot. But as we go through these, I want you to understand that these things build on, and as they look, we're going to be like the Bereans. We're going to look at the faith and say, well, that's completely reasonable and rational to believe in Christianity, unlike any other religion. Here's another one. The disciples that followed him for three years, when he died on the cross, their uh, view about what just happened, the way that they lived their life after that, that immediately, not, not you know, when you get to Acts, but immediately... They were found to be completely hopeless. They were distraught. They had not cooked up a plan and thought, oh, the plan's working. When Jesus died, they said, well, this is over. I thought he was the Messiah. They were hopeless. That's important to understand before the resurrection. Those, those day and a half, three days, however we, we look at it, um, they were hopeless on that day. Not only that, Jesus' tomb was discovered to be empty 36 hours after his burial. Right? 36 It was empty. So either he carried himself out of there because he was never dead, which is ridiculous. As beaten as bad as he was, he didn't just get up and say, well, I'm just going to get out of here. He didn't do that. Or someone hijacked his dead body out of there and just said, or he, he was resurrected. It's one of those three. But it can only be one of those three. But we know when we look at his disciples, they were hopeless. They hadn't cooked up a scheme the entire time to say, what we're going to do is get him to die and we'll just bring his body out. Here's where it gets tremendously important to see our, our faith is reasonable and rational. 500 different people had real experiences and they were absolutely convinced that they saw the resurrected Jesus. And the body that they saw him in looked nothing like some 18 hours before, or 36 hours before, this beaten up, bruised, horrifically body that he had some 36 hours before. He, was, he looked completely different. He looked like he did before he was crucified and beat up. You don't just heal that fast. 500 people testify to this. That's amazing. That's unbelievable rational 
uh, evidence. And here's where it gets important. That experience radically shaped many of those people from that point then to live a dramatically different life. The kind of life that they knew living would even cause their death, yet they did it anyway. Looking back on that gives evidence that that, what happened must have been real. What they saw must have been real. And as a matter of fact, it did lead to many of their martyrs. One of maybe the most convincing proofs is the entire three years Jesus was alive, over and over and over, he said, I'm going to die. He, he told him over and over that I'm going to die. And not only did he tell him, he also told him he's going to resurrect. So what happened, he told them for three years that it was going to happen. Even more so. Um, people started telling all over the city of Jerusalem what happened. And this is unbelievably huge for Thousands of years, for a couple thousand years at least, Jewish people only worshipped on Saturday. And to break that tradition would be, would never happen. Because Jesus resurrected on a Sunday, those people who were Jewish, who became Christians, broke with years and years, hundreds of years, thousands of years of tradition. And start. it's no small thing for them to just say, we're going to start worshipping now on Sunday and break break centuries of tradition. For them to do that, when we look back historically, we'd have to say something significant happened in their heart and mind for them to say, I'm going to break this tradition and start worshiping on Sunday. Another piece of evidence for us then that something really did happen that's true. Not only that, James and Saul, two men who were massive skeptics. I mean, James was Jesus' brother. And he, he said, this guy can't be God. And at some point he came and he said, my brother's God. None of you would ever say your brother's God. He said, yes, my brother's God. And Paul, who's trying to kill people, became a Christian. And these two unlikely skeptics start following Jesus. This, this huge proof that um, compiled upon each other gives us totally uh, reasonable and rational belief to say that, that Jesus is the Christ. Not only that... Um, and this is huge. If, if the disciples were cooking up some scheme the entire time to try to hijack the dead body of Jesus and say that he resurrected, the worst thing that they could do is send two women to be the first, the first witnesses. In the first century, that's the worst idea to try to make up a story to persuade people. It would only hurt their case. And yet, that's who it was. And so that when we look back historically, we say, well, that gives great evidence then that this must be true. It must be true. Not only that, um, there was the post-resurrection appearances where Jesus appeared to those 500 people. For, uh, over the time of, of 40 days, he did that. He did it for 40 days. And on top of that, all the Jewish leaders and all the Roman leaders could never find any evidence to dispute or overturn the claims of Christians that they were making at the fact that Jesus was resurrected. And he was appearing to people. He was appearing to people. Not only that is the moral character of the eyewitnesses. They wrote, even to their own demise, they changed and lived honest, hopeful, truthful, faithful kind of lives. And as they lived out their faith, it even meant their, their, their death, and they, they said, because this is true, we're willing to die for it, which gives us, I think, great 
Um, great reason to believe that these things are true. And lastly is this. The reliable eyewitness documentation that we have. Where we would look back and say, Shakespeare definitely wrote that. Let's find some manuscripts of Shakespeare to be able to say that this is definitely Shakespeare's. And we, no one ever disputes that. And maybe there's like eight pieces of manuscripts to say Shakespeare wrote this. And we all say, definitely Shakespeare. There's 5,600 manuscripts of the New Testament for us to say, these, these guys really wrote it. Matthew really wrote this. Not some dude sitting in a cave in 400 and thought, you know, I could just make up this story about this dude Matthew. Hey, Philip, come over here. Let's make up a story. That didn't happen. These things really happened. And they really wrote these things. And we have 5,600 manuscripts that have been found, written in Greek, that um, show that our sacred writings are, are more reliable and trustworthy, that these events really happened. Indisputable. That's, that's what, far more overwhelming evidence than things like, you know, did Shakespeare write or did Socrates write this? So, belief... So when we say believed, it was totally rational, reliable, reasonable belief. Not leap of faith. Not that. The Bereans had rational faith. Now, not only that. Now, so when I say believe to become a Christian, you don't just say, okay, I'm a Christian now. I believe the facts. That's not only what we mean. So while that's uh, the kind of belief we're talking about, there's more to it. And it also has an effect. has an effect in your life. So... I'll read a a couple more verses about what I mean about belief. So we don't just merely believe the facts. We also believe in such a way in order to be saved. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not that I just believe the facts, but Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God did raise him from the dead, you'll be saved. So with the heart that you believe and you're justified, and with the mouth that you confess and you're saved. So you say, I believe these things, but now I also don't just believe the facts, but I believe the good news. I believe the good news of the facts, which is, and I'm speaking in hyperbole, when I go to heaven and I'm standing before God and I'm, I'm wanting to go to heaven to be with Jesus, I'm saying, God, the only way that you would ever allow me in here, and this is, this is hyperbole because it's not going to happen like this, but um, I'm banking everything on Jesus' death. I'm banking my entire everything on that. My only hope is Jesus died on the cross and all my sin was put on him. And when he died on the cross, because he was perfect, all his righteousness was imputed to me. And from that moment when I believed in 1981 or whenever it was I believed, that moment, therefore, is there, there's therefore now no condemnation for, jo- for John Chambers at 1981. He's never going to be condemned. And now in heaven, I stand here, no, no condemnation still, because I'm banking everything on Jesus. That when he died on the cross, it was for me. So I believe Jesus, and I believe in Jesus. Both. I believe Jesus, that what he said was true, his promises, all these things. But I believe in Jesus, and I'm, I'm banking all my hope and trust and belief in his cross, and his death, and his resurrection. So that's what we mean when we say belief by the Jews. They were trusting, they were seeing, and they were having reasonable, rational belief that this Christ really was the one that came. But not only that, they're also believing in the good news of the gospel. That they can be saved. That they can have their sins forgiven. Or as Ephesians 2 says it, I wanted to read that one too. Ephesians 2, uh, starting 
at verse 8. It says it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. Faith is a gift given to us that saves us, that we receive forgiveness of sins. So, that's the third one. I wanted to spend a little bit more time on there because there's a lot to it because I think it really equips us well, again, with these indisputable proofs of of fact that help us understand our faith is totally rational, unlike any other. So, while these first three, one, two, and three we looked at, are, are about the word and how it helps us understand the word when we're looking at contrast, the fourth one that we see... <clears throat> is more about people. So there's a fourth contrast. I want you to see it. Look at verse 14. The brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained. That's different. And Thessalonica, everybody hightailed it out of there. We've got to get out of here. We're about to get killed. Let's go. I don't want to die. All right, let's go. But in Berea, Paul leaves, but who stays? Timothy and Silas stay. That's a, that's a contrast. That's a difference. What's going on? Put number four. So the fourth contrast is that that Paul left Silas and Timothy to disciple them while he went down to Athens. He left them to disciple them. So here's the application for you. Um, Paul decided in this particular moment to leave Timothy and Silas. They're brand new. They they hadn't been uh, disciples very long. Silas had just joined with Paul. Silas did not go on the first missionary journey. That was Paul and Barnabas. The second missionary journey, Paul said, Silas, I want you to go with me. And then when he went into the first city, he found Timothy and he said, hey, Timothy and Derby, join me. We're going on a mission trip. So Timothy was brand new to this whole mission thing. And what, how much experience did they have? They went with Paul to Philippi. They went with Paul to Thessalonica. Two cities. That's it. Two cities. And then all of a sudden, third city, I'm getting out of here. I want you to stay. So they had the opportunity to watch in two cities, watch Paul disciple, watch Paul evangelize in Philippi and Thessalonica. And immediately Paul gives them responsibility to oversee Berea while he leaves. I'm going to leave now. You watch me in two cities. You saw how it is. You get right at it. So the first thing I want you to see is if you're new in the faith, be like Silas and Timothy. Jump in right away. You don't have to have tons of experience. Here's the deal. The Holy Spirit is not fretting because of your lack of experience. If you mess something up, He's going to handle it. He's, he's okay. So if you are young in the faith, jump in to ministry and, and start doing it right away. Get after it. it. Don't fret in your head about messing up something. God is so much bigger than that. So if you're on the Timothy and Silas side, maybe new to the faith, new to ministry, I'm telling you, jump right in. Watch somebody for a short time, jump in on ministry. But I want you to think about Paul too. Perhaps you're a leader in ministry. Think about Paul. What does he do? He, he shows them in two cities, watch what I do. And what does he do? He doesn't hoard the ministry. He, he delegates immediately, which is good leadership. He delegates it. But what does he do? Who does he give them on their first try? Berea. What do we know about the Bereans? Like, they're awesome. He gives them a home run. Like, here's a little softball pitch in their paws. You're going to knock this one out. He gives them a home run on their first try. He doesn't give them Corinth, for heaven's sakes. They're going there. They're a mess. <laughs> he doesn't give them Corinth, right? He gives them Berea for the first one. So if you're in leadership uh, and you have people you're overseeing and you want to turn over something to them, which you should, you should always be delegating, give them a home run right away. Give them something that's easy. He gives them Berea while he goes down to Athens. Now, what does that do to them? I think it gives them great confidence in ministry. 
They're discipling these Bereans who love the word. Paul says, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to give you a brio. I go down here. And then whenever they go to Corinth and Ephesus, which are different, different cities, especially Corinth. I mean, you got a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law in Corinth. This is a mess. Those guys have had some confidence in ministry, and they're ready to go to the harder things. So he left Silas and Timothy, but the great applications we can make are, if you are young in the ministry or young in the faith, you're in ministry, jump in. Get going right away. Watch someone a couple times and go. And if you're Paul, if you happen to be a leadership, think about how you can strategically allow people to get some discipleship from you and then give them something and give them on the first ones things that are going to be easy. Who can you teach? Who, who do you know right now in the faith that needs to mentor someone? How can you lead them? Either you do it or get somebody else around them. Who can you teach to disciple? Who's someone right now that you can teach to disciple people? Who are the people in your life that you can, you can encourage to go be a Silas and Timothy to someone? Who are two people that you can say, that person right there needs to be discipled. I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it. Go do it right now. You can do it. And give them the encouragement and show them how to do it. Who are the people in your life that you can do that with right now? <clears throat> now, I want you to see something. This is where, uh, after this, there's not much mention of Berea. That's all we get. There's no letter to the Bereans that we see in the, later on in the scriptures. I wish there was. And right after the Thessalonians, I wish there was a Bereans. You know, but we don't have one. I wish there was. <coughs> but there is a mention that I want you to see in Acts chapter 20. That, that short little ministry Paul has there. He goes, he, he shares the, the gospel. People get saved, he leaves. Watch this in Acts chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. So he wants to go back. Well, the map's not there. He wants to go back to that region where Philippi, Thessalonica, all the, and, and Berea. He wants to go back to that region. And when he had gone through these regions and he had given much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was set sail for Syria. And he decided to do this through Macedonia. So that's through the region of Thessalonica, Berea. Philippi, all these. And look what it says. Now, Luke's just, you know, making a list of people that are with him. But watch this. Uh, Sopater. If you're pregnant, good, good male name right there. Sopater. If you're looking for a name. Or uh, Pyrus. You know, two good names there. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus, one of those two, of Berea, accompanied him. And the Thessalonians, and he goes into a list. So think about this for a second. Paul goes to Berea. He shares the gospel. While he's in Berea, sharing the gospel... Dad Pyrrhus, Pyrrhus, gets saved. He comes to know Christ. Not only that, uh, either Pyrrhus or Paul have an opportunity of, of leading son Sopater to, to the faith in some particular way. So this ministry that, that he has with, with Pyrrhus and, and son Sopater, uh, back in, in Berea, they get saved. And what's happening later on in chapter 20, what do we see? Paul is now taking them with them on his missionary journeys. This is pretty awesome. So this discipleship process isn't just limited to even Silas and Timothy. But Paul's now, from this particular city, taking Pyrrhus and son Sopater with him. They get to be missionaries with Paul. And so we see the discipleship process going even further. And this is what I want. That we, as Remedy Church, would see this kind of ministry happening. That there would be many sons and daughters in the faith that we're making... Yes, I want the pastors, the staff of Remedy to be making disciples and seeing spiritual sons and daughters happening that God would save. But I want the body as well, you, to be seeing spiritual sons and daughters that the Lord is allowing you to see get saved because of your ministry. Like Pyrrhus and Sopater. 
I think it's extremely encouraging to see, even later, that the ministry didn't just stay with Silas and Timothy, but even more people in that city are joining them now as they are on, 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 uh, on mission. Now, uh, we're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper. Whenever we go into the time of the Lord's Supper, this is a time for us to think deeply on what Christ has done, to consider what I was talking about, that all of our hope and all of our, 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 our faith is banking on Jesus. That the only way we will be in heaven with Jesus is because he died for us and all of his righteousness was then imputed to us and all of our sin that we should be punished for, that we should go to hell for, was put on him at the cross and the great exchange happened and now we are forgiven, we are free. And the Lord's Supper is a time where we come to the table and when we hold the bread and we hold the cup, we remember Christ's body broken. We remember his blood shed. And whenever we take the bread and drink the cup, it doesn't save you, but it reminds us that Jesus saved us at the cross. It's a time for us to remember the good news of the gospel. So if you're a believer in Christ, this time is for you. This is time Jordan's going to come up here in just a second and lead us in a song. The Bible tells us not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So think and pray for a few moments. Think about your sinfulness, but also think about what Jesus has offered you at the cross. Complete forgiveness of that sin. And when you're ready to come forward, grab the bread, grab the cup, come back to your seat, and I'll lead us through the time of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I would just ask that you observe. Just watch what's going on, and you'll hear and see in a tangible way the gospel uh, being remembered by these Christians in this room. And as we do that, uh, the gospel will be proclaimed to you. So whenever you're ready, uh, as Jordan's going to lead us in a song, you can come forward. Uh, just take a few moments. I'm going to pray. And whenever you're ready, come forward, come back to your seat, and then I'll lead us corporately in the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time that we have in your word. Thank you for your word. Uh, I pray for us all, God, that we would be like the Bereans and daily seek you in the scriptures so that we don't just have information, so that we know you more intimately. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper and we remember your body broken. We remember your blood shed so that we can have forgiveness of sins, so that we can have life eternal, so that we can have a relationship with you forever, so that we can know you. You're so good to us, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name.